From the Kennan Institute in Washington, D.C., welcome to Kennan X, a podcast on our never-ending quest to understand Russia, Ukraine, and the surrounding region. I'm your host, Jill Doherty. For me, and probably for many of our Kennan X podcast listeners, the image of Americans and Afghans being airlifted out of Kabul this August as the United States officially ended its 20-year war in Afghanistan, immediately recalled another military exit from Afghanistan 32 years ago. Armored vehicles with soldiers on top, waving red flags of the Soviet army, rumbling across the bridge over the Amu Darya River that flows between Afghanistan and Uzbekistan. Their war, like the Americans, was over too. And just as it stirs strong and sometimes contradictory emotions among today's Americans, the Soviet war in Afghanistan left an indelible mark not only on a nation that would collapse less than three years later, but on today's Russia. To try to understand this historic moment, I turn to two experts who have shared their insights with people who attend Wilson Center events. Bismela Alizada, who himself is Afghan, and the Wilson Center's Michael Kugelman, an expert in South Asia. So, Bismela Alizada, thank you very much for doing this. I understand that you are in Afghanistan right now? Yes. Mm-hmm. Are you safe? Well, for people who've been very vocal against the Taliban for the past years, the feeling of safety is something very rare these days. I myself, I am hiding in my home. And basically, physically, I don't feel safe. That's why I don't venture out. And even in terms of my future and my career, I don't feel safe because what I used to do in the new atmosphere that is being right now formed and is becoming dominant, I don't think if there is enough safety and enough conducivity for what I used to do to be able to be conducted in this current atmosphere. If things change in the future, then that would be something that everyone would be happy about. But currently, the prospect is not very promising. Mm-hmm. And just so our listeners understand, what did you previously do? What is your field? I was an opinion writer, a researcher, and a civil society activist and worker. So I used to work with this think tank, a research organization that is focused on promoting democracy, promoting research, promoting policy research and critical thinking, and at the same time, empowering women and youth in terms of honing their abilities and their skills in the area of writing and research. So that was what I was doing and I was publishing. I was a researcher myself, focused on terrorism, security, and Afghan politics for the past five or six years. Tell me a little bit about that new atmosphere, as you put it, because the reports that we're seeing here in the United States are very contradictory about the Taliban. Officially, their leaders say, well, we will respect human rights. We will respect women's rights. We want the help of the international community. On the other hand, there are reports coming in from the field of previous behavior by the Taliban when they were in charge, killing people, executing people, 
forbidding music, etc. So do you have any idea of where this is going, how they will conduct their leadership of the country? And why is it so contradictory? Well, the important thing for us is to right now bring the spotlight squarely on what the Taliban are doing right now. Of course, it's very evident, very clear that the past record is very, very grim. The past record is very horrendous and it's very shocking. And that's, of course, not acceptable to anyone, not to the people in Afghanistan, not to the region and not to the world. But the point is that since the past month or so, in the past two weeks specifically, the Taliban have been literally in power in Kabul and elsewhere in the country. We have seen documented cases, outrageous cases that have outraged human rights organizations, that have outraged the United Nations Security Council. Very recently, Reporters Without Borders announced that of the 700 female journalists who are used to work in Kabul, only 14% of them continue to work right now. And those two under restrictions. And that of all of the civil society organizations, none of them has started working right now, including the organization that I used to work with. Of the media, you might have seen a picture of a TV in which there are some armed Taliban in the studio lining up behind the anchor in the live program. And all of the TVs, like the Tulu News, they are literally sympathizing for the Taliban. So their critical lens is missing. Mm. That's the situation right now. And even the presence of women from the society has been very dramatically diminished. So for right now, there is a disastrous backroading of all of the achievements that we have fought for in the past two decades. So that's what we have on the ground right now. Of course, in terms of PR, they have changed because they appreciate the importance and significance of PR for their legitimacy in relation to international community and for securing funding from the international community. Mm-hmm. This podcast is about Russia and the region. And of course, Russia had 10 years of history, military history, and also other history in Afghanistan directly. And I was thinking it would be very helpful if you could, I know this is a big question, but is there a way that you could compare what Russia did, the influence of the Soviet Union in Afghanistan from 1979 to 1989, and then the 20 years of the involvement of the United States? Well, drawing a comparison between these two is very difficult because we don't have a clear set indexes against which we can draw the comparison. But the point is that generally there is, so I can go with a few indexes. One is the general perception. The general perception in Afghanistan, although there is, as I said in my previous interview with the Institute, there is no public perception study, but generally I can sense that there is a positive perception of the USSR occupation of Afghanistan compared to the US invasion post-2001. So basically, if we compare these two on the index of public perception, the Russian invasion would have more score. That's one. 
Another one is that in the Russian invasion at that time, because of a different mentality, because of a different approach and a different ideology about this, I mean, the ideology that was governing the invasion, the Russians used to invest on infrastructure. So they focused a huge chunk of their investment on infrastructure. They built roads, they built highways, they built silos, they built a lot of other stuff in the country that are remaining to date. The U.S. war in Afghanistan costs the United States at least $2 trillion. But Bismillah says it was spent quite differently. Most of it has been spending, expenditure, not investment in key infrastructures. Even the $88 billion investment in the Afghan security forces, most of it has gone to salaries. So basically, that's another index against which we can compare it. And to myself, it's very important to also compare it in terms of the withdrawal. I think the withdrawal of the USSR from the country was more orderly and more responsible, given the fact that the USSR at the time was facing a lot of economic pressures. Given that fact, it was very, very responsible. It was very orderly compared to what we have seen with Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan. You see that they withdrew in 10 months, and the regime that they had invested to prop up for 10 years, that regime, after 10 years of investment and training and equipment, that could sustain for three years after their withdrawal, literally for three years after their withdrawal, despite the fact that the whole NATO, together with Pakistan and the Gulf countries, they were against it despite that fact. But right now, even two weeks before the withdrawal is over, two weeks before the withdrawal itself is completed, the regime collapses. So this has a lot to say about the degree to which this was orderly or responsible or not. That's very interesting. I had two times that I went to Afghanistan for short periods, like a month or so, for my previous employer, a TV company. And I remember, oddly enough, doing stories in which I would go to, let's say, a technical institute, and I ended up speaking Russian. (laughs) because the scientists there or the technicians or whatever had been trained under the Soviets and actually spoke Russian. So I think I'm getting the impression of what you're saying. Certainly for a lot of Americans, it would feel very contradictory. For many Americans, the impression would be that the Soviet Union invaded, set up a puppet government, etc. And yet what you're saying... On the personal level for Afghan citizens, there was a payoff. That's right. But at the same time, let's be honest that even the case of the United States was also an invasion and propping up their own puppet. President Karzai at the beginning came to Afghanistan guarded by U.S. commandos, by U.S. special forces. Those were his personal bodyguards. So he came to Afghanistan. He was propped up. And even in 2014, it was John Kerry who settled the electoral dispute. Mm -hmm. And yet you have people right now, yourself included, or members of civil society who are very fearful. They feel that Afghanistan changed under the Americans, whether it was a puppet regime or whatever, that they had a chance to, let's say, get an education or work in the field 
of human rights. And now we're back to the Taliban. So I guess the question is, do you think that Afghans felt that the American experience gave them anything? Well, it's not a matter of that it was 100% positive or 100% negative. Of course, we achieved so much in terms of civil society, in terms of at least some procedures in exercising democracy and trying to set about institutions. We did achieve a lot, but the point is that sustainability of these achievements and these achievements per se were not very much valuable for the United States. They had their presence in this country based on a particular liberal democracy ideology, thinking at the beginning that if we try to set up and if we try to strengthen democratic institutions and if we try to bring about a democracy in Afghanistan that would help with the state building and peace. But in practice, they did not care so much about how sustainable these efforts would be, how sustainable the achievements could be and how these could stand on themselves once they withdraw. I mean, very recently, Biden very clearly once again said that the U.S. was in Afghanistan for only two purposes. One was to get Osama bin Laden killed, and another one was to make sure that Afghanistan would not be used as a launchpad for terrorism who would attack the United States. So that was squarely what they were here for. And everything else was just a bonus that came with it. That's why they didn't care if this would sustain or not in the long run. So let's look at the Soviets. Then what was their motivation? Well, basically, I personally think that the Soviets had a different ideology. They thought that once they invaded Afghanistan, Afghanistan would be part of the USSR permanently. That's why they thought they had an ownership of what they were doing in this country. They thought that we are investing it for ourselves, for the USSR, not for Afghanistan or any other notions like that. So they thought of it. They had the ownership. Could we talk about the Taliban a little bit right now? They obviously militarily took over the country. Will they be able to manage it? Will they be able to run it the way a government should be run to help its citizens and to manage everything that has to be done? Well, let's take a step back. Let's go to 2001. In 2001, when the Taliban was toppled after close to three decades of war, the same question was being asked. Will the Mujahideen be able to run a government? And they were incapable of running a government equally as the Taliban are incapable of running a government right now. But what happened was that there was a regional and um, international effort in terms of making the governance happen. And they did it to a degree at the beginning from 2002 and three to 2006 and seven. What they did was during the first Karzai administration, what they did was that they imported technocrats from outside. There were literally US and UK and Italian and French and German and Japanese foreign advisors and every institution in the government. That capacity was not in place at that time either. So for right now, the Taliban themselves are unable. In every respect, they're unable to govern. They have no notion of what governance is. They have no notion of what service is, what service delivery is. They have no notion generally other than they've been just fighting. They are good in the art of fighting, but they are not good in the art of governance and service delivery. 
And they even more disastrous than that is that they don't have a clear concept of the citizen-state relationship, and that is very crucial for governance. They don't have it, but if they are smart enough, I think then that incapacity, that lacuna can be filled with others. In the past 20 years, there have been a lot of technocrats and a lot of specialists and skilled people trained in Afghanistan. There are foreigners who can, from Afghan diaspora, from international organizations who can come and help them in setting up their government and trying to help staff run. Bismillah, I'm remembering a conversation that I had in Moscow after 9-11, and it was a Russian intelligence person, and he was looking at the Americans preparing, or maybe at that point already had begun the operations against the Taliban, and he was very critical, and he said, look, you Americans are making a big mistake. We made the same mistake when we went in as the USSR. And Afghanistan, he said, is never going to change. We didn't change it. You're not going to change it. And it would just be useless for you to carry out this operation. And essentially what he's saying, it's a pretty cruel statement, but what he's saying is Afghanistan continues. And forgive me, but I'm quoting him, that it's ungovernable that it will never be able to be governed and that it will constantly be beset or taken over by religious fanatics, military groups like the Taliban or other terrorists. So what do you say to that? Well, basically, I would say that that is a very colonial point of view. That's a very colonial mindset about Afghanistan. This is not a very new idea. Mm -hmm. This was, first of all, in the 18th and 19th century, this was put forward by the British in the colonial time. So it was first the British in 1842, and then later in 1880s, who said the same thing. They said Afghanistan is ungovernable. Mm -hmm. But the point is that when you say Afghanistan is not governable, what is your definition of governing Afghanistan. That is very important because from the point of view of an invading army who wants to govern, that is a different definition of governing a nation than from the point of view of the people who are living in that country. It's not that it's not governable, but it's that we do not have the right approach. We do not set up the right institutions in this country. That's why it doesn't work. But it's not that there are certain people in the globe who are not governable. There are certain people in the globe who are governable. There are certain people who are civilized and know what governance is. And there are uncivilized people who are always opposed to governance and political order. That's not the case. That's very unfortunate and very disastrous colonial thinking. Even in, the, in 2001 and 2002 in the United States, and they came into Afghanistan, they did not want to change I mean, up until 2007 and eight, they didn't have any program, any agenda for setting up an army or whatever in the nation building. So they didn't want to change anything. The United States hubris, its arrogance was hit at the time. And the United States just wanted to show to the world that I am not intimidated by a terrorist group. I can act. So it was a projection of power for a while. It was just a projection of power by a superpower to just show to the world that it's not intimidated by this. And at the same time, to use this opportunity to be under the nose of some of its arc rivals, like 
China, Iran, and the Federation of Russia. So it was not a matter of trying to help Afghans to be governed, trying to set up governance whatsoever. Uh-huh. How do you think that China and Iran will deal with this? Will they exploit it, try to get involved? What will they do? I think, yes. This has been a dream coming true for China, particularly. Since 2013, China has been trying to be a regional and then a global hegemon, trying to redefine and re-engineer and restructure the world order. So this Belt and Road Initiative that is traversing through Pakistan and then through Central Asia and through so many other places, this is very important for China's regional projection. So, yes, China would exploit this. I mean, why wouldn't it? (laughs) Yes. And what about Iran? Yeah. So Iran is gravitating towards China. Everyone knows that. Particularly since a few months ago, I think it was last year, when the 25-year agreement China was signed in Iran. So basically, Iran is gravitating towards China. And the two of them will be very much happy in terms of exchanging what the other one needs. Iran needs international support, diplomatically, politically, and militarily. Iran needs military supplies, arms, and military training and those stuff. China can provide it. China needs energy. Iran can provide it. So Afghanistan can be a land bridge between the two countries. In terms of sea route, China is very much vulnerable to the American dominance in the seas, in the oceans. And it would be very interesting and very important for China to have overland pipelines for its gas and energy from Iran or from any other country, from Turkmenistan, as it has been investing for many years. So this would be a very God-given opportunity for China and for Iran. And most of all, the two rivals of the United States in this region They would be happy to join forces to fill this vacuum. (laughs) Yes. And finally, what about Russia? They're in the process of changing, I think, their approach. But they have continued to deal with the Taliban and their embassy is still there. What does Russia do? So basically, the relationship between Russia and the future government, the Taliban government, would have three levels, I think. What Russia would be able to offer the Taliban would be oil, It would be military supplies, it would be military training, and it would be recognition. The Taliban very direly needs the veto power of Russia because the Taliban expect that when they set up their government, when they announce their government and they start governing, they might face some sort of sanctions from the United States or from the European allies of the United States. That's why the Russian veto power will be very vital, in fact, for the Taliban. That's very important for the Taliban right now. Mm. And what the Russians want from the Taliban in this bilateral relations will be trying to fight against terrorism, particularly those terrorist organizations that will be harmful in the Russian backyard in Central Asian countries. There are five or six organizations, the Islamic Movement of Uzbekistan and the Kachibai Imam Bukhari, the Islamic Jihad Union, the Jamaat Ansarul. The Russians are pretty much obsessed with the presence of ISKP and Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. So that's one that the Russians might demand the Taliban. And another one is drugs control. 
If you've been following in July, when the Taliban delegation went to Moscow, they had a meeting with the Russian diplomats in Moscow. And in the statement that came out from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Russia, there was this demand, or very bold, that the Taliban should ensure that they fight against terrorist organizations, that the Taliban should ensure drag, because drag production and smuggling is a very critical issue for Russia. So this is in terms of bilateral level, but in the regional level, I think it will be more challenging for Russia because in the regional level, Russia is facing China. Russia is facing a China that's trying to project its power in terms of economy and military, its clout in this region. So basically, China will have a better chance because China has money to invest. Russians do not have enough money to invest in Afghanistan and to sustain a government. They don't have it, and they are unwilling to do it. But China, the Chinese, they do. They have it, and they want to invest. And another very important issue in the regional level is the rivalry between China and other regional countries like Russia and India to secure extraction agreements in terms of mining. China has been very much keen for the copper and lithium mines in Afghanistan, and I think Russia will also be very much interested in this. And at the global level, finally, the Russians would need to also keep in mind the UN factor. Most of the Taliban members, the leading Taliban members, are right now, according to the 1988-2011 resolution of the United Nations Security Council, they are on the terrorist list. So. Russia would be very important in this case as to lobbying in the United Nations at the international community, the international arena, to delist these people from the sanctions list. Mm. And one of the very important things is for the Taliban that the Russian cooperation is not very much conditioned on values such as women's rights and, and, and those stuff. So Taliban will be more comfortable aligning with the Russian demands. That is a view of Bismillah Alizada, an Afghan still in Kabul as we did this interview. Michael Kugelman looks at Afghanistan through the prism of South and Central Asia, a massive region in which many countries are watching what comes next. We began with the Soviet Union's withdrawal in 1989, which he calls traumatic. In the sense that it was a very unsuccessful mission for the Soviets and that they were never able to do what they sought to do in Afghanistan. And they alienated the local population in a big way to the point that within Afghanistan, mistrust and suspicion of the Soviets and then the Russians would endure for quite some time once the Soviet Union collapsed and Russian financial support to Afghanistan stopped that's when things really collapsed in Afghanistan. And the Soviet-aligned leader, President Najibullah, he had to resign. Civil war broke out in Afghanistan, and then you had several years of chaos, which eventually led to the emergence of the Taliban. But as the civil war was playing out in Afghanistan, and as the security situation was getting worse and worse, Russia became increasingly concerned about the emergence of the Taliban and what it stood for. So Russia ended up providing support, backing to the major anti-Taliban alliance, we could call it, the Northern Alliance, so to speak. And this is a group, of course, that received backing from a number of external players, India and Iran as well. But of course, that was only limited in the sense that the Taliban was eventually able to take power, and it held power for several years. And then once U.S. forces 
entered Afghanistan in 2001, Russia was clearly watching and waiting, wanting to see what would play out. And I think that initially in those years, when, as you know, the relationship between Russia and the U.S. was not nearly as fraught as it is now, I think that there was a sense of hope that the U.S. and its allies would be able to bring some modicum of stability to Afghanistan as the rivalry deepened between the U.S. and the Russians. At this point, Russia became very concerned about the U.S. footprint, the U.S. military footprint. So things would evolve to a point over the last few years where there is really, I think, a paradox in how Moscow regarded the U.S. presence in Afghanistan. On the one hand, though it wouldn't admit this publicly, it welcomed the modicum of stability that the U.S. military helped bring because by having U.S. forces on the ground, it enabled U.S. forces to train and advise Afghan forces and put them in a better position to push back against the Taliban. It enabled the U.S. to carry out counterterrorism activities against ISIS. So in other words, not that the U.S. was a wholly stabilizing force in Afghanistan, it was not, but it did prevent more destabilization. And that was something that Russia would not have wanted, more destabilization. But of course, on the other hand, Russia wanted the U.S. to leave because it knew it would gain a strategic victory if U.S. forces were to leave. But what had happened over the last year or so is that Russia had began cautiously, quietly reaching out to the Taliban, which clearly is a major change from what had happened in the past when it was backing the forces that were fighting the Taliban. And for Russia, its goals, its objectives were very simple. It wanted terrorism problems to be dealt with in Afghanistan. Russia, at the end of the day, would have been perfectly happy and is willing to accept at this point a government in which the Taliban has control or a lot of power, so long as there is less instability, which really is the case now. And Russia also values the fact that the Taliban, like Russia, is a rival of ISIS Khorasan, which at the end of the day remains Russia's major concern in Afghanistan. And now, looking forward to what could come, certainly there's a lot of uncertainty. But I think that Moscow, to my mind, is one of the countries that would be willing, in relatively short order, to recognize the Taliban government and try to engage with it to address these remaining concerns about terrorism risks and so on. Hmm. It seems that you've got the United States and, let's say, USSR, but more modern Russia, with different approaches as to what security actually means. The Russians seem to be looking at it in sheer power. Who's in control? Who's going to control the terrorists, etc.? The United States, and perhaps for the wrong reasons, according to Joe Biden, decided that maybe if you had a more secure, democratic Afghanistan terrorists would not be able to proliferate, and therefore you'd have a more stable country and less threat to the United States. Is that a correct analysis, that they were coming from two different concepts of what security means? But I think on broad levels, there actually is some convergence between the U.S.-Russian sides on what they would envision as the best outcome or endgame in a security context. I think that broadly speaking, both countries would like to see less terrorism by the same groups, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and so on. And in the end, both countries were willing to live with a situation in which the Taliban would hold a significant degree of power. I think that Russia has always been more comfortable about that prospect than the U.S. had been. But I think one of the bigger problems here, and this gets to the reasons why the U.S. war effort didn't work out, is that successive U.S. governments after 2001, really failed to articulate a strategy for why they were continuing to fight in Afghanistan. Was it really indeed 
a desire to try to shape a more democratic future for Afghanistan? Or was it simply more limited to going after international terrorist organizations like al-Qaeda and later ISIS? My sense, particularly with the last two administrations, Biden and Trump, is that that latter narrow lens was the one that was adapted. President Trump a number of times had said that we're not in Afghanistan to do nation building. And I think that that certainly was the case with President Biden, too. But going back earlier on to the Bush years and the Obama years, certainly there were major efforts on the part of the U.S. government to do nation building, even though that's a bad word in many contexts. There was infrastructure that was developed. There was huge amounts of money poured into building new roads. But I think that that was seen more as an effort to promote more stability. In other words, if you've got better roads, if you've got more people employed – that will prevent the likelihood of people being radicalized and going to the Taliban. So I don't actually think that democracy promotion was ever really a major objective, at least on formal levels, for any of the administrations that had overseen the war since 2001. So on that front, again, perhaps you're seeing some convergences. And both the Russians and the Americans were willing to work with a variety of actors, a variety of factions, many of them quite unsavory, whether you're talking about warlords or any type of militia leaders or that type of thing. They were each willing to work with unsavory characters to advance their goals. What do you think about that idea that Russia would be happy to have the United States bogged down? And for that matter, China would be happy to see the United States bogged down indefinitely in Afghanistan. Yeah, absolutely. I think the extent of the rivalry between the U.S. and Russia, which certainly you would know more about than I would, Jill, but clearly it had gotten to a point where – Yes, I think for strategic reasons, Russia would be perfectly happy to see the U.S. get bogged down and stuck and not in a position to do much. But again, as I said earlier, there's a paradox here in the sense that the Russians actually valued the modicum of stability that the U.S. brought. And seeing them suffer and seeing them fail, sure, I mean, that works for optics, for propaganda purposes, and also for strategic reasons, because you want to see your rival getting bogged down in your broader backyard. But I do think at the same time that quietly there was an acknowledgement that a U.S. military footprint did provide security benefits for Russia. Speaking of the broader backyard, Russia really is a power broker in that region. Is it fair to say that they are a more important power broker than the United States in that region? Oh, absolutely. I think that Central Asia, strategically speaking, has been a blind spot for U.S. policymakers for a number of years. And there's been a lot of lip service about how the U.S. is intent on building out a new Silk Road and investing more in the Central Asia region. But what we've seen over the last few years is Russia and increasingly China, particularly as the relationship between those two countries has grown, they have both been deepening their footprint in this region. And the U.S. really can't hold a candle to it. And it reminds me of a very telling exchange that I had been a part of a number of years ago at the Wilson Center, in fact, when I was hosting a discussion with some senior U.S. officials who were talking about their plans for becoming more involved in Central Asia. And I remember that in the audience during the Q&A, someone stood up and he raised his hand and he asked a question. He identified himself as a diplomat from one of the Central Asian embassies here. I don't recall which one. And he said, well, this sounds great. We're very encouraged by this. But 
how could we trust you when you're absent completely now? We don't see America in our region at all. And this was a number of years ago, but I don't think that has changed. Mm -hmm. So the Russians have let's call them demands or things that they would want the Taliban now to do. Let's turn it around. What would the Taliban, as much as we know, it's a short period of time, but what would the Taliban want from Russia? I think that the Taliban's major foreign policy goal, and it seems weird to be talking about the Taliban's foreign policy objective, <laughs> but it is going to be a government. I think its core objective right now is maintaining and deepening the legitimacy that it had first earned after it signed an agreement with the Trump administration in February of last year that entailed U.S. troops leaving the country. That legitimacy that the Taliban earned has been huge for them, and they want to continue to build on that. So I think that when it comes to Russia, the Taliban will be hoping that Moscow will be willing to recognize the Taliban government. I think that will be one of its first hopes. And the Taliban knows that over the last few years, Moscow and the Taliban have developed a rapport. There have been a number of meetings, and Moscow had hosted several high-profile conferences involving the Taliban and other regional players. So there's something there. So I think that that really is what the Taliban is going to be looking for. And I think given the Taliban's acute need for financial assistance from the international community. I mean, you know there's a pretty severe economic crisis in Afghanistan and the West has indicated that it's going to sanction the new government. The Taliban needs money. They may have been a very wealthy insurgency, but you need a lot more money to run a country than you do to wage an insurgency. So I think that the Taliban would hope that if it gets that recognition, if Moscow formalizes relations with the Taliban government, the next step could be some financial assistance. Now, certainly Russia wouldn't be able to provide support on the levels of what China could do or some of the countries in the Gulf. But certainly I think that the Taliban does see that as something that they would like to work toward with the Russians. Mm -hmm. Let's look at Afghanistan in a regional focus again. You've mentioned China. What's their game in Afghanistan? What do they ultimately want? We're talking about three U.S. rivals here, China, Iran, and Russia. And I think that generally speaking, they all have the same concerns in Afghanistan, concerns about terrorism and specifically ISIS terrorism, though in China's case, they worry about an additional terrorist threat posed by a very small group called ETIM, which is comprised mainly of Uyghur militants. So terrorism is a concern for these countries, as is the drug trade. We've seen poppy production explode in recent years, especially because the Taliban had encouraged it, made a lot of money off of it. And you look at, if you map out the drug trade of narcotics and poppy coming out of Afghanistan, neighboring countries, regional countries, including China, Iran, and Russia, a lot of the heroin coming into these countries is sourced from Afghanistan. So that's a concern. And then the refugee issue is a big deal. Now, Iran, it's particularly concerning just because Iran is the country that borders Afghanistan to the West, of course. And historically, many Afghan refugees have gone to Iran. Other than Pakistan, there have been more Afghan refugees in Iran than any other country over the years. But of course, the other countries worry about refugee issues as well, to an extent. So all three of these countries, and specifically speaking of China and Iran, I think they would be comfortable working with the Taliban government. Final point, China has a very strong desire to bring investments, infrastructure, into Afghanistan. Contrary to some observations and commentary, China has not been a major economic player 
in Afghanistan over the last 20 years. It's interesting because China is perfectly happy to bring its investments into volatile, unstable spaces, but it's always been very cautious in Afghanistan. It hasn't done much there. But now that you have a government led by the Taliban with the war, at least for now, over, that gives China a major opportunity to get assurances from the Taliban that it'll be okay with China bringing infrastructure projects in, which I'm sure it would be. And then it has an opportunity to add to its Belt and Road Initiative by coming into Afghanistan, such a key country geographically, because it links Central Asia, and it also is the link to the Middle East. So I think that one major change that we could see in the coming months, unless things get out of control in Afghanistan and violence and war returns, is that I think we will see China slowly but gradually becoming more of an economic player in Afghanistan. And Russia, with its growing relationship with China, I imagine would want to find ways to be a part of that. Mm -hmm. And then if you look at the relationship between Russia and the United States, how does what now has transpired in Afghanistan affect relations between the two countries? Well, it's interesting that despite their rivalry and their tensions. I've been heartened by the fact that both countries have been willing to decouple their bilateral tensions from important regional diplomatic efforts in Afghanistan. So in recent months, for example, there have been a series of meetings involving what's called the Troika Three Group, which involves the US, Russia, China, and Pakistan. So it's not just Russia, but the US is working with China in this context. And I think that's significant because it highlights the fact that there are some shared interests between the U.S. and Russia and Afghanistan. Again, focusing on that issue of terrorism, these concerns about ISIS, about ISIS Khorasan. Both Russia and the U.S. worry about them a lot. But I think that it would be unrealistic to think that you could generate new pathways for cooperation between the U.S. and Russia on, say, working with the Taliban to try to help it go after ISIS Khorasan on the battlefield. Because at the end of the day, the U.S. has essentially left Afghanistan at this point. It's not really a player there anymore. Its military presence is gone. It's going to try to continue to be engaged to the extent that it can. But so long as it doesn't recognize the Taliban government, and I don't think it will anytime soon, I think that will limit the leverage and the footprint that we can expect from the U.S. in Afghanistan. And I think that will make it more difficult for it to work with Russia. But I think it is important, even when you have these deeply embittered, hostile relationships, to try to carve out some safe spaces where you can actually have some reasonable discussions and debates. And I think on the U.S.-China side, you look at climate change potentially as one of those areas. And I think with the U.S. and Russia, it is Afghanistan to the extent that both countries really are concerned about the ISIS-K threat. And of course, that has been, I think, even more so after you had this recent tragedy where 13 U.S. soldiers were killed in an ISIS-K attack. ISIS attacks in Afghanistan had rarely targeted Americans or U.S. troops. So this was a rare case where that group staged a deadly attack on Americans. That'll make the U.S. recognize even more that it sees eye to eye with Russia on this ISIS-K threat in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And that, in a way, raises the question of whether the Taliban, now that they are in power, can actually maintain that power. And as we began this conversation, whether they can actually run a country. I mean, there are questions. There's a lot of brain drain right now. People who are technically proficient, IT people, anything, most of them either have left or want to leave. How are they going to be able to realistically run the country or could it just devolve into civil war? 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. It will be very difficult for the Taliban to consolidate its power and to run the country. I think it would be unrealistic to think it could be otherwise. Several reasons why. One, the Taliban does not have experience with running a country. I mean, it does to an extent when it controlled a good part of the country in the 1990s, but it controls much more of Afghanistan now than it did for that period in the 1990s when it was in control in Kabul. And its brand of governance back in the 1990s didn't involve having folks sit around a table and discuss economic policy. It entailed the use of draconian forms of justice. It entailed terrorizing people. It didn't involve reasoned, judicious use of macroeconomic policy, for example. Delivering basic services has also been something that the Taliban has struggled with. And if you look at some of the areas in Afghanistan that have been controlled by the Taliban in recent years, and really even in recent months, there's clear cases that they really struggle to know what they're doing. Another factor is that there is a very severe policy challenge right now, that being the economic crisis, which had been in place well before the Taliban took over. But it's gotten worse in recent weeks, and it's going to get even worse given that the Taliban government will not have access to almost $10 billion in foreign reserves because the U.S. and the West have cut that off. And then it's also going to be distracted by terrorism. I think that ISIS-K, which again is a rival of the Taliban's, is going to want to try to stage more attacks to prevent the Taliban from consolidating its power. So clearly, if Afghans, who already are in many cases very concerned, anxious, worried about this Taliban government and don't trust it, don't trust the Taliban, if they see the Taliban struggling to deal with this economic crisis, if they see it struggling to rein in these terrorism problems, they will resist. They will take to the streets. They're not going to be cowed by the Taliban's repressive uses of control and so on. But yes, to your point about brain drain, that's another critical factor here, that the very skills and the very types of people that the Taliban needs the most right now, technocrats, economists, even those that could operate aircraft, all of these aircraft that the Taliban have inherited and have never used before, a lot of those people have left because they didn't want to stay. So that will pose an additional challenge for the Taliban. So what comes next for the country that over the past four decades has seen two military powers come and go? I asked Bismela Alizada, has anything really changed some people I've spoken with say, in spite of everything, Afghanistan is a different country from what it was 20 years ago, and that people do, at least in the big cities, they have cell phones, they have access to the internet, they are different, even psychologically, technologically, etc. Do you agree with that? Is it a different country? And could, let's say, this time with the Taliban be different in terms of what the citizens themselves could demand of the government? Well, basically, I would say that, yes, the proposition is correct that Afghanistan is a different country compared to 2001. But then the conclusion that we are drawing from this is not very much correct. The point is, of course, the society is different right now. They are more demanding in terms of their rights. And they are empowered in so many cases. We have very powerful media, we have journalists, we have science organizations, and so on and so forth. But the point is, the Taliban is not the Taliban of 20 years either. The Taliban have also changed. And the prospects that they have, the possibilities that they have, have also changed. If Taliban are very close with China, you know, the Chinese, they have a hugely valuable experience in terms of 
cracking down on social media, on media, on everything. They have this technical expertise in the world in terms of the firewall and everything. So if that is with the Taliban, if the Taliban has a very close relation with China, they can do a lot to repress. And there is a huge potential in the whole region. Pakistan, they are very much inclined to support the Taliban in terms of cracking down on media, cracking down on various platforms and various ways in which people express themselves and their dissent. This has been a much longer podcast than I usually do, but Afghanistan is complex. If you want to learn more, listen to the Kennan Institute's Global Perspectives series from October 7th, 2020. It's an excellent in-depth discussion with Bismillah Alizada and Michael Kugelman about Afghanistan and Russia. And you can find it on our Kennan Institute website. Kennan X is a product of the Kennan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C. It's the Wilson Center's oldest program, founded in 1974 by George F. Kennan, American statesman, James Billington, historian and former librarian of Congress, and historian S. Frederick Starr. Inspired by them, the Kennan Institute's mission is to improve America's understanding of Russia and the wider region. Thanks for listening.